Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. Welcome to episode 74. We're creeping on up there. I feel like nothing really happened this week. It was pretty It's a pretty lame week. I mean, yeah. What 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 did you do this week? I have nothing to report. <laughs> oh my God. This is the week that just doesn't end. Yeah. Um, so just yeah, we're recording this Saturday morning. Yeah. Um, we tried to hold off until there was a resolution in the election because both yeah. of us have been completely consumed and on edge and it's really hard and- to write stories when you're refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm hoping that when you guys hear this, uh we have a new president and um everybody everything's calm and peaceful, but um we couldn't hold off any longer. So we're we're recording now, but it's been a crazy week. Yeah, it sure has. It's been a roller coaster of emotions. Yes. And it also Election day was your birthday, Sally. It was my birthday. So what did you end up doing? I know you ran away from everybody and hid in a cabin. I did. I just didn't, apparently didn't go long enough. I <laughs> So we went up to this place in Georgia called Big Canoe, where you've been before. It, they, we rented a cabin, Ben and I and Max, and it was lovely. We got up in the morning and they gave me presents and made breakfast Aww. and I got a, a stand-up paddleboard. Cool. Yeah. Did you use it? Because I know they have. Well, it's too cold. Hey, right. I think you. I think you can still use it. Um. No, I didn't use it then. We just didn't. I didn't have time. Um. And I also was like, I don't really want Max to be on this thing in the cold water. Yeah. I got paddleboard and an Instapot. I have not used either. But these are all amazing gifts. I know. Ben was like, I really feel like you deserve it this year. (laughs) I'm gonna go all out. We usually don't do big gifts, but was right. Yeah. It was great. So then uh, we went for a nice hike, and then we went to a winery that was beautiful. Um, have you ever been to Fainting Goats Winery? I have. It's yes. beautiful, it isn't is. it? Like it mm-hmm. really, yeah, amazing setting just out like on this hill overlooking mountains. And um, so we did that, and that was just like, it was just such a lovely day. And then we came home to election night coverage, and I – almost had like a panic attack. It was oh. awful. And then I woke up and Jen told me I should have hope because yeah. <laughs> can I tell you what you can I say what you texted me, which made me oh, laugh where, so hard. Who my news sources were. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Jen was like, I think we should have hope because Gilbert, who's the smartest person I know, which is he's a, a comedian, <laughs> Gilbert Long, uh, who's so great. You guys should look him up. He says that we're looking good. And also this dad from our kids' school who <laughs> Was on a Jeopardy. Jeopardy champion, by the way, not just on Jeopardy, a Jeopardy champion. And I was like, well, Jeopardy dad says. <laughs> and then later in the day, I texted her back and was like, maybe Jeopardy dad is, maybe he's got onto something because he said that Georgia was going to flip and look at Georgia now. Yeah. And that I'm was on Wednesday you. morning. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gilbert, you know, he's, uh, he's crazy. I love him. <laughs> Love him to death. He's Love one of the him. funniest people I know. But he is a math genius. And he yeah. like it, did the numbers and was like, you guys are crazy. George is going to flip. And every, it was at a time where everybody was like, what? No way. Yeah. And they were right. Yeah. It's, it's pretty great. <laughs> okay. We should stop talking politics. Everybody Yay. has been living no, this no, for the no. last week. You guys don't need, I know. need to hear us. Um, so let's get into some quickies. Okay. Let's do it. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Do you feel like you're like a good wife? No. (laughs) I'm a good wife. I'm a good wife because I am like, I'm very good at doing domestic, like Zach's got, Zach's vegan and he has like great cooked meals for him every Uh night. And, you know, I like doing stuff like that and I'm pretty good at cleaning. Um, But I'm like, (laughs) I'm good in that sense. I'm a good mother. Uh, But I make fun of Zach all the time in <laughs> my whole comedy act is just ripping Zach to shreds. Yeah. And I'm sure you guys have picked up on that on the podcast. So no, <laughs> I'm not the best wife. 
Yeah, actually, our first <laughs> one of the first ideas for a podcast when we were trying to figure out the reason why we talk about relationships is because Jen's first idea was was it called worst wife? You were like, <laughs> we're talk about oh, that's right, being the worst wife. <laughs> and Sally was just like, the- but I'm actually a really nice wife, and I'm really nice <laughs> to Ben. I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> You're like, fine, we'll talk about other people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my quickie today is about a woman who's a really good girlfriend. Okay. She's a great girlfriend. Uh, so Amanda Smith, in May of 2019, she drove – her boyfriend got arrested, and she drove all the way down to the sheriff's office to post bond for him, and that is really nice. Unfortunately, the 29-year-old had a, her license revoked in April. Oh, no. Yeah, and this is a small town in Missouri, so the police officers – when she pulled up, were aware of that. So as she drove drove up to the sheriff's office, the deputy who was at the desk arrested her for driving without a, a license. Oh, no. Yeah. So Sheriff uh, <clears throat> Matt Aller noticed Amanda being arrested on the video monitor, like while it was happening, while the deputy was arresting her. And while the staff were kind of dealing with other inmates, he noticed that she's like digging around in her bra and in her pants. And so he calls over his chief deputy and he's like, watch this. What do you think's happening? And the chief deputy was like, all right, okay. So he went down to the booking desk and he looks at Amanda and he goes, I'm going to need you to give me the bag of meth you brought with you to the jail. Oh, my God. (laughs) And Amanda was like, what? I don't have meth. And the chief deputy points up to the camera and he's like, we saw you. And she looks at the camera. She immediately starts crying. And then she digs the bag of meth out of her pants and gives it up. So she was booked. Oh, my God. He was like, I need you to come get me. And don't forget the meth. And don't forget the meth. And don't. And drive on over in the car, even though your license is revoked, which I'm guessing probably for meth. So she looks at the camera. She starts crying, right? So she was booked on suspicion of driving while revoked uh, and delivery of a controlled substance to a county jail. Holy shit. (laughs) And the sheriff posted about the whole thing on Facebook, which is how we know about it. (laughs) And he posted like her picture, everything. So and then after at the end, he said, here's the takeaway. If you're going to commit a couple of felonies... Do it somewhere other than the sheriff's office. <laughs> no kidding. We'll arrest you and put you in jail for committing felonies, especially when you literally come to us to commit them in our presence on video. I mean, come on. Hashtag don't do that. Hashtag leave your meth at home. Hashtag I can't make this stuff up. Well, at least they have a <laughs> sense of humor. I know. You probably have to. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. What a bunch of dum-dums. What a bunch of dum-dums. I mean, so, Jen, you know, maybe you cook some vegan meals, but would you take meth to jail is what I'm wondering. I absolutely would not. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm in the would not, too. I think. Yeah. I, you know? I also would not go down to the – sheriff's office without being like what the fuck did you do now what the hell fill yourself out no i would i would bail him out but i wouldn't drive on a suspended license i'd take an uber i'd take an uber take an uber if you can if you can buy meth you can buy an uber yeah yeah (laughs) that's my takeaway if you got meth money you got uber money so that's my quickie (laughs) <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. My quickie this week is from actually like Twitter sent me this um Twitter. article. Yeah. It's Twitter it like, just came up in my feed and I was like, boom, I don't even have to research this week for my quickie. Nice. Um, but it's an Needed article that. for moneywise.com, an article um written by Sarah Kunane about Bridezilla stories. Ooh. And so these you are know all I love a Bridezilla. Yeah. Bridezillas. And, and there are Grimzillas out there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We know that. There are yeah. lots of them. But this article really just talks about the brides. Actually, no, yeah. there is a one Grimzilla in here. I don't know that I I'm rambling. You guys were very tired. So we've been slept all week. And I'm also very hungover. <laughs> um, but these are all stories that are uh, were shared by traumatized former bridesmaids. Um, <laughs> this first story, this was written by Sarah Beth 616. She said, in her country or culture or family, I don't really know, <laughs> is what it says in parentheses. Um, 
Turtles were a symbol of good luck. And mere weeks before the wedding, she came up with the idea to have turtles at the reception. How, you ask? She wanted Mm -hmm. living turtles walking around the reception hall with lit candles glued to their backs. No. Lit flaming (laughs) candles. And she said she saw no issues with this plan. When we tried to explain that the turtles could get crushed or stepped on and that it was cruel to glue candles to their backs, and most importantly, that a lit candle at ground level could start a fire. (laughs) And apparently the bride then threw a fit of epic proportions. They finally came to the solution of adding turtle-themed things to the table decorations. (laughs) Because that wasn't good enough for our bridezilla, we teamed up with some local reptile wranglers to line the wall with giant aquariums that had live turtles swimming in them. (laughs) We had to have a staff for the turtles and extra insurance for the hall, but we pulled it off for the turtle bride. Dude, I would not want to be known as the turtle bride. I I just don't understand why people keep being friends with people like this. Like I was just like I'm not participating oh in my this. God. It gets That's not so. You're not so. The stories get so much worse. Um this one is by Beachy5313. She said the bride wanted her bridesmaids, of which there were nearly a dozen, to not only plan her shower and bachelorette but also plan the wedding. Uh-uh. Um, it says each person was given a task like narrow down and present top three photographers. Others were tasked with arranging flowers, calling DJs, and so on. I was on the verge of tears of how stressed I was planning a wedding that wasn't even mine. Not any of my florists were ex- uh, florists were acceptable. Needless to say, the majority of us are no longer friends with this bridezilla. So there you go. Yeah. Some people okay. do. Yeah. This was written by Anonymous, but I do believe them. Okay, Um, me too. I choose to. (laughs) The bride wanted an unconventional wedding, as in a three-day-long campground potluck wedding for which the whole family was expected to fly cross-country from New York to California. We had to bring our own tents, sleeping bags, and a hot homemade dish that you'd have to haul across (laughs) 3,000 miles. We respectfully <laughs> declined to attend. And then this other person, this is why I believe this person, this other person, um, ABQA is, is, is their name, Abqua, uh, said, I'm going to a wedding this summer. Not only is it a three-day event that involves camping and staying <laughs> at the site for that long, the bride is asking for help setting up and bringing stuff. I will only be driving down for the ceremony. I think it's pretty tacky to force your guests to provide free labor for your wedding. I agree. I agree. That is very tacky. Now here we have a momzilla. I will say that I that wedding sounds kind of fun. It to is, me. but like I just leave out the dish. Bring a hot dish. Like just don't bring a hot dish is what I'm saying. Like don't yeah. make people. Yeah, bring that's what a I mean. Hot- yeah. Okay. Don't- <laughs> yeah. No Sally. Crazy. No hot dish. <laughs> no hot dish. Do you know how hard it is to bring a hot dish to the desert? That's crazy. (laughs) Um, Here's one uh, written by Zosa. And um, it's uh, that um, this was a person that was a wedding photographer. And she's talking about a momzilla. And she said, the bride's mom comes up to me at the beginning and tells me to not take pictures of any of the groom's family. She said that they didn't help pay for the pictures, so they shouldn't have any pictures taken of them. Wow. <laughs> that's crazy. I told her that's not how it works and I didn't feel comfortable doing that. Um, and she said that she bickered with me for a bit and then left in a huff. And then she um then she came back and said, Well, fine, just don't take any pictures of his mother. <laughs> <laughs> what a bitch. Here's one that's real crazy. It's written by someone who's goes by the name is Strong Like Bull. Which is good. Okay. <laughs> um, Yay. It says about her bridezilla experience. She said, she slapped me. She slapped me during the reception. Her dress had this massive organza skirt. It was beautiful, but impractically designed. It took at least three of us to hold up her skirt so she could use the restroom. On the second trip to the restroom, with all of us holding up the dress, she hovered over the toilet and she ordered me to wipe her. And then she wrote, <gasps> she ordered me to wipe her. Uh-uh. I declined, so she slapped me. The skirt was dropped by all parties, and I shouted obscenities at her. She screamed that if I didn't do this for her, the friendship was over. She ap- tried to apologize years later and seemed surprised when I was not interested in rekindling our friendship. Oh, my God. 
Isn't that insane? That is insane. And then one last one about, um, so obviously they're not friends anymore. Uh, but one last one to speak to people that are not friends anymore, written by Jay Squeaks. Cute name, Jay Squeaks. <laughs> uh, she said, I helped her plan the whole wedding on a budget of around $3,000 for the entire thing. I made 120 lavender ca- votive candles with custom lace and ribbon accents. I made all of the bouquets, uh, floral arrangements. She ordered about 500 red and white roses. None of them were dethorned or trimmed down properly. (laughs) So she did all of that. She said, I made the centerpieces. I hemmed all three of the bridesmaids' outfits. I spent 60% 60 of the wedding keeping her family and friends from killing each other over petty arguments. And I took the photos at the reception. And then she said, I saw her maybe three times after the wedding and she hasn't called me in almost a year. Wow. What a bitch. Man. You guys. People treat your friends friends. nice. Yeah. Treat your friends nice and stop being friends with people that aren't treating you nice. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I think young people believe that like friends are disposable, but it's not true. No, it's harder. To, it, as you get older, you'll be like, "Oh, I need to put effort into my friend, my friendships. Right. This is right. important. It's important. It's also important to just be a good person. Yeah, just be a good person. <laughs> you should treat your bridesmaids or attendants, or if you have that at your wedding, like they're doing you a favor. Exactly. You're not giving them the honor of being your bridesmaid. Nobody wants to be a bridesmaid. Like, I know. I mean, it's like you do it for your friend, but it's you're doing them a favor. So treat them nice because, this, yeah, it's and not do fun. You, you think that you want to have all these perfect memories of your wedding, so you're particular about it, but the only memories you're going to have is yelling at all of your bridesmaids, and all of your bridesmaids, they're all just going to remember what a fucking bitch you were. Yeah, and dropping your dress in your in your pee. Wipe your own damn ass. <laughs> Wipe your own ass. Guys, we're a little angry today, and I think it's because, <laughs> once again, we've had very little sleep. And I'm so very hungover. <laughs> oh, man. So those are quickies. Um, great. Those are great. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. <laughs> are you ready for a crazy story? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I got I'm my... i inf- kind of mood. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm just excited to sit back and do nothing for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> Nurse, nurses hangover. So I got my information from Murderpedia, from, from ABC News reporting by a bunch of articles by Angela Chambers, Ali Yang, Katura Gras, and John Merson from cnycentral.com by K- Jim Kenyon, heavy.com by Beth Hine, and an episode of the podcast Generation Y. That I was just listening. I just discovered that podcast uh, this week, and I was going to s- mention it on the podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, that, that's I so it was random. Really that was good. the first time I yeah. uh, I had listened to it. So what? Uh, all right, okay. So we're in sync, Jen. We're in we sync. Are. Okay, so in August of two thousand five. 41-year-old Stacy Castor started getting worried when her husband of two years, David Castor, failed to arrive at work on Monday morning. Stacy was the office manager at her husband's business, Liverpool Heating and Air Conditioning. She tried to sell several times but couldn't reach him. And then finally around 2 p.m., she called the police. And while this may seem premature, she did have reason to worry because she told police that her husband had locked himself in their bedroom the day before, after the two had gotten into a fight, and Stacy said that David had been depressed recently and she was worried because he kept a gun in the bedroom, and she asked police to meet her at the house to check on her husband. Oh, my God. So Stacy and David, although they had seemed like a, a great match from the start, their relationship had become strained, mostly because of David's poor relationship with Stacy's two teenage daughters from her first marriage, Ashley and Bree. And David, who had a grown son of his own, told the girls even before they got married, the two, Stacy and David got married, that he didn't want any more children and that he would not be stepping in as their father. And their own father, Michael, had died in 1999 of a heart attack when Ashley was 11 and Bree was nine. And Stacy's mom said that David was difficult with the kids, that he expected them to do everything without a question. And them being kids, they questioned everything and created a lot of problems. And David used to call 
17-year-old Ashley, the older daughter, selfish and disrespectful. He sounds awesome. Yeah, he's, I know. In fact, the fight that weekend had been about the girls. Like, David was planning a vacation for Stacy and his wedding anniversary, and he wanted to be alone with his wife, but she refused to leave their younger or her younger daughter, Bree, who was 15 years old at the time, home alone. And so Stacy actually told ABC News that she had never seen her husband so angry. So Stacy said that her husband had been drinking and that when he locked her out of the bedroom, she just decided to let him be. And so she kept her distance all day Sunday. She slept on the couch that night. She went over to a friend's house, but her daughters were at home, so she didn't want to leave them home alone with David. An asshole. Yeah. So she said she thought he'd eventually pass. He'd eventually had passed out because she put her ear up to the door and she heard him snoring. So on that Monday, she met a sergeant from the county sheriff's department at her house. He looked through a bedroom window, but he couldn't see anything. So he banged on the bedroom door, but no response. He could hear the television blaring, but he didn't hear anything from David. So eventually the sergeant forced open the door and he found David Castor lying naked on the bed. He called for paramedics, but it was too late. David, who was only 48 years old, was dead. And... On the nightstand, police found cranberry juice, apricot brandy, and two glasses, and one of the glasses was half full of a bright green liquid, and on the floor next to the bed was an antifreeze container. Uh. Right. So the sergeant told Stacy Castor that her husband was dead, and she got hysterical. Her friend arrived and found Stacy completely in shock, and she just kept repeating, he's not dead, he's not dead. And then at the morgue, the chief deputy medical examiner conducted an autopsy, and he found that there were crystals and presence of those crystals in the kidney, and so that confirmed that he had died of ethylene glycol toxicity, which is- Drinking anti- the antifreeze. Antifreeze, yeah, antifreeze yeah. poisoning. So antifreeze, it causes organs to shut down, even if you ingest just a small amount. And so based on what he found in the report, the coroner concluded that David had committed suicide. Mm-hmm. But- Not everything added up. So when police searched the house, they found a turkey baster lying in the garbage can in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And the baster looked brand new, but it smelled like alcohol and it had a few drops of green liquid in it. So David's first wife, um, Janice Passant, was convinced that her ex-husband and the father of her only child, David Jr., cared too much about his life to end it. She said he would never commit suicide, never. He loved life, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, I know people say a lot, so it's like you don't – you never know, right? Yeah. But – so then the detective on the case, Dominic Spinelli, thought something about it was off as well because when he first walked into the house, he did think that it looked like suicide. The door was locked. They had had an argument. He obviously did drink the liquid, did drink the antifreeze. Uh Um, But he said the longer he sat with it, he said, a sixth sense is something you develop throughout your career. It tells you something isn't right. So police started investigating this as as a suspicious death. And meanwhile, Stacy held a funeral and buried her husband. She got a small tattoo on her shoulder of a teddy bear with angels to commemorate David. And it was actually the same tattoo she'd gotten on her other shoulder when her first husband, Michael, died. (laughs) What? Yeah. Oh, my. Also, teddy bear tattoos? I know. With wings? Come on. I don't like it. Uh, Yeah. So Stacy and her daughters... Like, seemed to be reeling. Ashley actually wrote a letter to a friend saying that she was depressed about her stepfather's death and her father's death and that she was even contemplating suicide. And as the evidence is coming in, the police are starting to get a picture of what they think happened. They did forensic tests on the glass that had the antifreeze in it, and the only prints they found on it were Stacy's, not David's. There were no prints on the turkey baster, but they did find David's DNA on the tip of it. So police thought, well, this is odd, because if he used the turkey baster, then his hands, like his fingerprints would be on like the bulb of, of it, right? Yeah. So yeah, they thought, sorry, I'm like, what did I write? But so they thought, yeah, they were like, it'd be weird that you would use a turkey baster to give yourself antifreeze from the glass. And then also that it would have to have your prints on it. And so 
They also looked at Stacy's phone records, and even though she claimed that she had called David repeatedly throughout the day on Monday, it turned out that she had only called him once right before she called the police. When oh. she was like, I'm so worried. I couldn't get a hold of him all day, but she only called him that once. So oh. police are obviously thinking Stacy was behind her husband's death. And they also start thinking, you know, if she had something to do with David's death, that maybe they should also take a closer look at her first husband, Michael's death as well. So Stacy and Michael Wallace had met in 1985 when they were both teenagers. And Stacy said that she knew five minutes after she met him that she was going to marry him. She said he was larger than life. Mike was the life of the party. If you needed something that Mike had, he would give it to you. And the two were inseparable right away. And Stacy's mom said it was the happiest she'd ever seen her. The two got married five years later in 1990 at Stacy's parents' home with their three-year-old daughter, Ashley, serving as a flower girl. And after their marriage, they had a second daughter, Bree, and Bree was totally a daddy's girl, while Ashley and her mom were actually very close. So Stacy worked days at an ambulance dispatch company, and Michael worked nights as a mechanic. And their opposite shifts like put a strain on their relationship, as did Michael's partying, which, you know, he was the life of the party, which was great when they were young, but then they had kids and it turned into like, oh, he had a real problem with drinking and drugs. Mm -hmm. And so it was late in 1999, almost 10 years after they got married, that Michael started getting sick. And so on and off for about six weeks, Michael would com repeatedly complain about feeling dizzy and nauseous. And his sister said he was acting like he was drunk and he was like very unsteady all the time, although he told his sister, I'm not drinking as much, and that he was just really tired of feeling bad. And so on, on the dinner at Christmas Eve of 1999, his family noticed that he was coughing a lot, that he seemed swollen and puffy, and everyone uh. was like, go to a doctor. You need to go to a doctor. But he's like, I already went to a doctor. And they told me that it was an inner ear disorder because he was like kind of acting woozy and whatever. So he didn't go. Like vertigo type. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that was what the doctor was like. I don't know what it is, but it might be this. So then in January of 2000, Ashley, who was 11 years old at the time, was home with her father. And he was laying on the couch and she said she thought he was making like kind of funny faces at her. And then all of a sudden he just sticks his arm up in the air and puts his arm on his side and then the arm just fell down. Mm. And she kind of didn't think much of it because, you know, she's 11 and she also – She doesn't know what the signs of a heart attack are. Right. And she'd yeah. seen him, you know, he'd been sick for weeks now. So so she left to go pick up her little sister Bree from school. But then Stacy came home and found Mike unresponsive on the sofa and called an ambulance. And Mike was pronounced dead at the hospital. And the doctors told Stacy and his, his family and, and Mike's family that he had died of a heart attack. He was 38, which was very young for a heart attack. Yeah. But also, given his drug and alcohol issues, it was not like totally unsurprising, you know? Mm -hmm. No, it was not totally surprising. <laughs> That's, uh. Damn, my brain's gone. His sister wanted an autopsy, but Mike's mother and Stacy both said no. So they ended up, there was no autopsy. And no one suspected anything until Stacy's second husband died. But although they had their suspicions about Stacy, they really didn't have any proof that she had done it. Detective Spinelli reached out to investigators in the county where Michael died to learn more about his death. And on September 5th, 2007, two years into the investigation, police exhumed Michael Wallace's body. They found that it too was loaded with antifreeze and rat poisoning. And so oh, man. Detective Spinelli said, I knew at that point we had a double homicide and Stacy Castor probably killed both of her husbands. Two days after they exhumed Michael's body, Stacy was brought in for questioning. And at one point, Detective Spinelli asked Stacy, do you remember which glass it was that you poured the cranberry juice in? And she looked at it. He had the two glasses there. And she said, well, I poured the antifree. I... And then she stopped and said, oh, I mean, my God. Yeah. She's like, I mean, I mean, the cranberry juice. And then the detective was like, excuse me, what? And she was and then she accused him of trying to frame to her. Like mess her, uh, mess yeah, her up. And then she stopped the interview. And Man. so police are feeling very confident that so this was that was on September 7th, 2007. And they're like, okay, we're going to arrest Stacy any day. But then something 
totally crazy happened. So on September 14th, 2007, Brie Wallace finds her sister Ashley barely breathing on her bed. And next to her on the floor were an empty bottle of pills <gasps> and a bottle of vodka. Oh my God. So Brie calls her mother into the room and Stacy calls 911 and she told the dish- dispatcher that it looked like Ashley had drank alcohol and taken the- a bottle of pills. And Brie found a typewritten letter next to Ashley's body and it was a rambling suicide note. Oh my God. It was addressed to mommy and it told Stacy. I love you. I don't want you to go to jail for something you haven't done. And then in the letter, Ashley confesses that she was the one who killed both her father and her stepfather. Holy shit. I feel like I know where this is going. Nuts. (laughs) So Stacy hands the letter over to the police and Ashley is rushed to the hospital by paramedics. And they got her there just in time because doctors said 15 minutes later and Ashley would have died. (gasps) And they pumped her stomach and found a mixture of prescription drugs and alcohol. And when Ashley woke up, she found a police detective towering over her. And he was demanding, you tell me about the murders, tell me about the letter. And Ashley seemed completely confused. She said the last thing she remembered before she passed out was her mother making her an alcoholic drink, <gasps> something she'd never done before. And she told the officers that she did not write any note. And police were like, yeah, we believe you. Like, after oh all, she was word. only 11 when her father died. So Evil, evil woman. Yeah, oh, my so, God. Your own children. I know. Holy so please fuck. now believe that Ashley had almost become Stacy's third victim. And Ashley told police that she had been at her first day of college, so she was 19 now, that she was first day of college when police came to tell her that her father had died of antifreeze poisoning. And so she called her mother right away, and they actually have this all on um, because they put surveillance. They put a tap on Stacy's phone, Mm -hmm. and so they have her calling. She called her mother and was like, the police just called and said dad that dad died of antifreeze poisoning, and her mom was like, this is a really hard day. Why don't you come home? We'll have a drink. Um, we deserve it. It's been a hard week. And Stacy and Ashley were super close. Ashley said that her mom was her best friend. And so, of course, she went. She went home. And so they had a few drinks that night. They went to bed. And then Ashley went to school the next day. And then she came back to her mom's house. And her mom was like, let's have another drink. And Ashley said this one tasted really gross. But her mom was like, Oh, well, just put the straw at the back of your throat. You won't taste it. Like, (gasps) and that's the last thing that Ashley remembers. And so police believe that Stacy spiked that drink with sleeping pills and then fed Ashley crushed up pills and vodka throughout the night while she was too out of it to know. And what's more chilling is that while Ashley was drugged in her bedroom, possibly dying, Stacy was outside of their house in their yard partying with friends. <gasps> yeah, presumptively to like establish an alibi. And oh my God. This I is know. like pure evil. It is pure evil. So, oh, this poor girl. I know. Stacy went to trial where her defense team tried to argue that Ashley was the one who killed the two men and then tried to commit suicide, mostly on the evidence of that note. Um, But the prosecution, on top of all of the other evidence, showed that the note, as well as there were other practice drafts, were typed on Stacy's computer at a time when Ashley was known to be at school. So I was like, well, Ashley could not have done this. I mean, this woman is just like the biggest fucking idiot. Like, she got away with killing the first husband, then she kills the second one in the same manner. And then then she thinks she's – she just thinks she's untouchable. yeah. So in addition to the turkey baster and fingerprint evidence, the prosecution noted that the money was one of the main reasons that Stacy had murdered her husband, of course. She had murdered um, them partly to collect on their life insurance and their estates. And when David died, that David was the second husband, everyone was surprised that his will left everything to Stacy and nothing to his son, David Jr., because he was very close to his son. Well, it came out that Stacy had actually forged that will. Oh, my God. And had two family friends sign as witnesses to the will 
after David had died. And those oh friends my God. later, yeah, they later testified they didn't know what they were signing. They were like, we didn't know it was a will. She asked us to, we thought just, we were just like helping her out. And like her husband um, had just died. And yes, and trying, yeah. And so yeah. we got to make sure the girls are careful. And they, they, so they testified, no, we did not see David signing that will. So prosecutors also said of course ashley's suicide attempt quote unquote had been planned out murder murder attempt by stacy against ashley and on the stand ashley told how her mother had convinced her to drink um she repeated that she only drank the nasty tasting beverage because she trusted her mom so in on february 5th 2009 stacy was found guilty of second degree murder in the poisoning death of david and of attempted second degree murder for overdosing her daughter ashley with drugs and vodka the judge sentenced Stacy to 51 years to life in prison. So the soonest she would get out was 51. And she was, I think, 46 at the time. So they were like, this is likely a life sentence. Um, she wouldn't be eligible for parole until 51 years. And Stacy maintained her innocence. And in fact, both she and her mother both said, even after the verdict, that it was Ashley oh. who did it. And neither Ashley nor Bree ever talked to their mother again after the trial. And then after serving seven years on June 11th, 2016, Stacy Castor died of a heart attack while serving her sentence in Bedford Hills, New York. Ugh. And so there's one last crazy wrinkle to this story. So the district, district attorney in New York announced in 2010 that they were investigating the circumstances surrounding the death of Stacy's father, Jerry Daniels, who had died on February 27th, 2002. So apparently John was hospitalized at the time at the time for like a lung ailment and but he was getting better he was due to be released from the hospital but then a witness says that he got a visit from his daughter Stacy who brought into <gasps> his room an open can of soda for her father to drink and then the next day he was unexpectedly dead. Oh my god. Yeah, so after the, his death, Stacy had her father's remains cremated right away, became the executor of his estate, but because he was cremated, it's unlikely that he will ever be able to make a case. They'll ever be able to make a case and now she's dead, so there's no there's just no way to prove anything. Wow. But Stacy had all, had buried all three men, Michael, David, and her father Jerry Daniels, right one right next to each other. Wow. And the district attorney called the called it a monument to murder. And after her death, she was buried there too with the three men that she Oh my god, I hope they haunt her for the rest of her eternity. Yeah. So luckily just weeks before she was buried next to his father, David Jr. was able to get a court order to move his father's body to a new plot and to destroy the headstone which on it called him the beloved husband of Stacy. Wow. Yeah. So, and you can actually watch this whole thing in, in a lifetime movie form. Uh, it's a movie called Poison Love, the Stacy Castor story, and it stars Mia Vardalis. So that. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so that makes it at least kind of fun. Yeah, I will watch that. Yeah. Poison seem, Love. I'll watch it today. Today is a day that I need to just lay down. <laughs> And watch something. And you only have to kind of watch it because you already know the story. So No, it's good. Oh, my God. Yeah. Those poor girls. I can't imagine that kind of betrayal. Like from your mother and who yes. you consider your best friend to, to find out that she not only killed your father but was trying to kill you and blame you yes. for the murder of her husband. And then to sit in trial and have to face her, that's just like – fucking mind-blowing mm -hmm. oh my god and stacy testified at her trial and said it was all like she was like ashley brought this on herself this is all her doing <gasps> at the trial it just is yeah oh, um so demented yeah at the and, and at the sentencing the judge was basically like i've sentenced lots of murderers and serial killers and you're in your own league oh yeah yeah. For sure. It's mm -hmm. just insane. Wow. Yeah. I'm looking at a picture of her right now. I had to Google it. So I know, Ugh. I mean, I know this kind of, it has to do with someone's child, but it's not child. She wasn't a child at the time and then she didn't die. So that, right. no, that's no, no, why no. I thought it was okay. It is okay. Because <laughs> it was such we a crazy allow. story. It is a crazy story. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. Nia Vardalos. There's a picture of her playing as, her. And as yeah, Stacey it's Castor. just like. 
that's not my big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> very different role. Um, um, very wow. different role. Okay. Dude, Sally. Yes, Jen. Are you ready to wrap things up with a love story? I am ready. I'm, I shouldn't I'm ready say to wrap. I'm oh, sorry. I shouldn't say wrap things up because we still have half the show left. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is a very nice story. Um, this love story came from an article for RD.com uh, written by Jen Babakan. Uh, it's a great article written by her. Very good writer. Also an article for WMC Action News 5. Uh-huh. And an My article. favorite action news. Is it? That's a good action news right there. <laughs> and then an article for ABC News by Eric Knoll, Susan Schwartz, and Injoli Francis. All right. All right. So in so last year in 2019, a man named KT Robbins, who is was at the time a 98-year-old war veteran who and he lives in Mississippi. Uh, he was cleaning out his home because KT was a widower. He had been married for 70 years wow. and his wife had passed away. Now, they, they never had any children, but there were a few of women in the neighborhood that were neighbors of theirs that were, were very close to him and his wife, and they considered these women to be like daughters. One oh. of them, um, named Linda Tosh, was there helping him clean out some old things with another friend. They didn't say who the other friend's name was, but Linda Tosh was helping him clean out some things out of his house when they came across some old photographs. And Linda saw this one photo of a beautiful young woman that she knew was not his wife that passed away. So she said, hey, KT, who is this? He looked at the picture and instantly he goes, oh my goodness, that's Janine Ganey. She was my first love. Oh, I know. So in 1944, during World War II, KT Robbins was part of the 95th Baker's Battalion Station in, a, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. It's B-R-I-E-Y, Brie France, Brie France. I don't know, but it's somewhere in France. So yeah, he was in the Baker's Battalion. So what they would do is they would bake bread for people, for the military. Oh. And so they took a boat to Brie Mm-hmm. And set up their tents and a mobile bakery. And he said that they would bake up to 3,000 pounds of bread a day. Wow. Yeah. So back then when they were making bread, this – can you imagine this quarantine bread? Right. Everybody thinks they're such bakers. <laughs> can you bake 3,000 pounds of bread a day? Um, how's your sourdough starter? Um, so, but, so they would get their ingredients in these huge bags and these large like gallon cans of lard for the bread. And so they had a bunch of cans all lined up by the fence. And this young girl approached Katie and she had two little kids with her who were her brother and sister. And she said, hey, mister, can we have those cans? And then KT said, sure, but I don't know what in the world you need it for. And then she ended up explaining to him that her father would use the lard. Then he would also use the metal from the cans. And that's how they started talking. And he said, that's how it all began. So this young woman was Janine Ganey. They started talking and it was at first a friendship, but it grew and grew. They became very good friends. He said said that she would come visit him every day at the mobile bakery tent and that her family would invite him over to their house for meals. So the family loved him and he said they loved each other. Neither of them spoke each other's language fluently, but they managed pretty well. He knew just enough French and she knew just enough English for them to be able to communicate. But the one thing that they knew is how much they loved each other. And so he was there for um, several months while they lived out their short love story. Mm-hmm. But then one day, KT got word that he was being transferred to Bastogne, France. He had to leave and it was he had to leave like right away. He didn't have much time to say goodbye to her, but her family had a going away breakfast for him, which was so nice. And he said that the day that he had to leave, he called her to tell her that he was going. And he said, Janine, I've got to go. I don't have time to see you. And then they ripped the phone out of its hands (gasps) and said that there was no more time for calls. And that was the last that they spoke to each other. Oh, 
It's heartbreaking. I know. So KT ended up going to Bastogne and then he ended up moving back home after the war and he wasn't sure how to find Janine. But he ended up meeting his wife that he ended up being married to for 70 years. He says by mail. He was a pen pal of hers who worked in the same shirt factory that his uncle worked back home uh-huh. in Mississippi. And he said, and they never, I cannot find an article that says his wife's name. Um, oh, he really? talks about his wife, but I don't see like where what her name is. I can't like I've Googled. So if let's anybody's listening her, and you know, let's call her Esther. Esther, Esther and okay. Katie. Esther and Katie. That sounds good. Um, <laughs> but he said we had a great seventy years together. He ended up owning a hardware store for thirty five years, and he said that they had a very good life. But he never forgot Janine Gennay. Yeah. And Linda, the woman that's helping him clean and is yeah. like a daughter to him, said that he would often say to her, I sure would like to go back to France. But she never thought anything of it. She just thought he just wanted – who doesn't want to go to France? Right. We, we don't want to go. go to France. But they won't let us in. <laughs> um, then, So one day, Linda saw a story online about veterans all going back to Normandy for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. So she mentioned to Katie that there was this trip for veterans happening. And he said to her, you have got to get me on that trip. I want to go. You have to get me on it. So this trip was organized for, there's a donation-based nonprofit group called Forever Young Senior Veterans. So the group (laughs) organizes and pays for senior veterans to fulfill lifelong wishes to return to battlegrounds or meaningful places from their past. And um, it's called trips of honor which is such a great program yeah and so this particular trip was to honor the veterans by visiting normandy on the 75th anniversary of d-day he tried to sign up for the trip and he didn't make it i I think that all the spots were full but then last minute there was a dropout one of the veterans that was supposed to go um, ended up dropping out last minute and KT was able to get the last seat on the plane to France. That's amazing. I know. And so they gave him a questionnaire. So just like they give all of the veterans where they ask him, is there anybody that you want to see while you're like, what what do you want to see while you're there? Is there anyone you want to see while you're there? And KT listed Janine. They tried to tell him that, no, 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 it's not for ex-girlfriends. It's like, do you want to see some other soldiers that you fought with? You know, do you want right. to see? And he, but he refused to change it. He was like, no, I just want to see Jenny. He knew that she probably had already passed away. You know, at this point, Jenny would have, would be 92 years old. Right. And so the likelihood of her being alive wasn't that high, but the veteran group was able to track down some of her family members and they asked Katie if he would like to meet them. And he was thrilled, you know, like, yeah, I would love to meet them and hear about her life and, you know, and tell them about our, and see them again, you know, because they were so good to him. And she had brothers and sisters. And so he set out on the flight to France to visit a place that he hadn't been in 75 years. Um, And Katie said that the trip of honor was just more than he could have ever dreamed for. He said it was so, you know, it's just so wonderful to be back in France with all of his fellow veterans and that he could share stories with. And he didn't think that the trip could get any better until... Ah. One of the nurses on the trip. I'm so excited for this. (laughs) I know. One of the nurses on the trip turns to Katie and confessed to him, I'm going to tell you something. She's alive. (gasps) And so they had found Janine Ganet. She was living in a nursing home in Metz, France. And when her family was first contacted by the organization, they were like, what are you talking about? Our mother never had a relationship with KT. Like, who is this guy? You know, and we would have known. But when they showed Janine the photo that he had of her with him, um, she was like, yes, that was, that's KT Robbins. And I, he was my first love. And so her children were like, what? And Linda explains like back then, you know, people keep, 
kept those things close to their heart. It wasn't stories that they shared, especially when they go on to live different lives. Janine confessed that she was very much in love with KT and that she was absolutely devastated when he had to leave. And she actually waited for him for five years before deciding that he's not coming back. And then she ended up marrying and she had five children with her late husband who passed away 30 years ago. But she had never forgotten about KT and she always hoped that one day he would return. Oh my gosh. I know. So they brought KT to her nursing home in Mets so that they could reunite. And when they got, when he got there, she was sitting in a wheelchair in the lobby and he immediately recognized her and said that she was still so beautiful. And so KT and Janine then sat down together and all of the memories came flooding back. They had, they embraced, they hugged, they kissed, they smooched a lot. Really? And yeah, there's video <laughs> of it. I'll put it on the Patreon. And then... um it's so sweet. And so they had a, an, an interpreter because his French was not as good as it was 75 years ago. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, I tried learning because I thought I was going to Paris. I tried brushing up on my French like months ago and I can't remember any of it now. But anyway, so Janine just tearfully kept asking the interpreter, why did he wait so long? Why did he wait so long to come back? What took so long? So Katie and Gene just they they like sat there together and uh, embracing and like looking at the photo of themselves and he took out an old photos out of his pocket of her and she oh. was like yeah that's me <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so he told her that he loved her and that he always had and Janine told him that she always loved him and always thought of him and always hoped that he would return after the war then they had dinner together and they had spent 2 hours together But then it was time to go and she got out of her wheelchair and she walked with her walker to his car where they hugged for a long time and she didn't want to let him go. But, you know, he lives in America and she lives in France. But since their first reunion, they met one more time for three days and this time it was with her family and his dear friend Linda, who uh, she went with him on the trip. Yeah. And she said it was so sweet seeing them walking in the streets where they courted and at the corner where his tent and bakery once stood. And KT said that it was just a wonderfully surreal experience. He said, I remembered exactly where she lived, even the front door. Um, And he just said that even though he doesn't have plans to move from Olive Branch, Mississippi to France, he says he still, I just love her so much. And so uh, he had to, you know, go back to the States again, but they knew that it would not be the last time they saw each other. Even though he's he was 98 and she's 92, there is a team dedicated to keeping them together. The organization, uh, they worked together to set up emails and video calls between the two of them. And then they even have people that are... So a lot of people saw this story about yeah. their reunion and they're committed to helping them stay together. I couldn't ever see their first names, but it's uh, these people named Varamian and Height who were working together to set up the emails and the calls and that they got them a computer and they have translators. They're helping them translate the emails between the two of them. And then their love story caught the attention of another Las Vegas businessman named Manny Cordova. He lives in Las Vegas training dogs for law enforcement. And he's a complete stranger to KT, but when he read about the love story, it reminded him of his own father who served in World War II, and it struck a personal chord. So he called the Forever Young Veterans, and he uh, offered to pay for a round-trip flight for Janine to come visit him in Olive Branch. Wow. Isn't that so sweet? He said, aside from just doing the right thing, you know, I think it's in a way my way of saying thank you. I want to tell him how much I appreciate him for doing that for us. And then KT said, I want him to know how much I appreciate him doing that for us. It's been great, man. Anybody who would do that for somebody like that, that's terrific. Um, So (laughs) that's just terrific. That's just terrific. It's swell. Um, And all that Manny Cordova wanted in return was to be there when the lovers met again so that he could spend some time with them. He just said, I would love to witness something like that. I mean, the history of the two coming together would just be amazing. 
So I'm assuming that that did happen. So that was the last article about him paying for her to come. Mm -hmm. So that was in July of 2019. And so this past July of 2020, during the core, in Olive Branch, this is just the last update on them. Yeah. In Olive Branch, Mississippi, the city celebrated him because, you know, he's a veteran on his in honor of his 99th birthday. Wow. His friends and family put together a giant parade, birthday parade that came through his town and on his street. And it was a long line of engines and vehicles to celebrate him for his 99th birthday. And he said, I never imagined it would be like this. The birthday parade was something special and unique. And it was all just to celebrate this true American hero. And when they asked him, he is still in contact with his long lost love, Janine. And he said, absolutely. They are still very much in contact. All wow. by way of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. That so, is amazing. Isn't that so funny? Like, it's, I love it. It's so sweet. And the videos are so sweet. I'll share it. But isn't that just amazing that, like, at 98, it's not over? Yeah. You know what I mean? You could start yeah. love, find love again at 98, and you can spend 75 years from someone and then pick – and in another on another side of the world. Right. Three months and, with someone, and you yeah. could still – feel that love and that I mean yeah what a that's an amazing story Jen that was really good I know I I'm glad I found it I am too I am too that was awesome look at us pulling it together during election <laughs> week with some good ass story we we really waffled we really were like Jen was I like know. are we gonna record I was like I can't I can't get my shit together no and then I was like fine it fine wasn't I will easy. <laughs> It was not easy. Um, um, well, well we love you guys, and we didn't want to let you down, so we pulled it together, and uh, we hope that you uh, liked it. Yeah, let us know. <laughs> let us know. God um, let us know. Are we doing it right? All right, let's do something dumb and something we love. Let's and just then, do uh, it. And then let's let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Okay, so I'm first and I, I you know, I I don't know how else to be like like the dumbest thing is just Trump Trump and his reaction oh, to yoy. this whole election, the disinformation, his lies, his just complete eroding of the democratic process is just uh, is disgusting, and that's that's just real dumb, and it's really mm -hmm. disheartening, and it's really it just makes me so sad. <laughs> it makes me so sad. Yeah, um, it makes me so sad, and I'm a lot of other people. But the thing I love, which is what I want to focus on, is I'm just so excited to live in Georgia right now. And I remember when we moved here, it was right before the governor's election where Stacey Abrams like lost by just a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being so energized by her and that election. And of course it didn't go her way, but yeah. just her reaction to it of like getting on the ground, organizing, getting all of these, I mean, not that she did it herself, like all of the organizers, mostly women of color who got into the communities here and were like registered 800,000 voters, which is just like first time voters amazing. And just that their work really uh, turned out and then, and Georgia seems like it's going to flip blue and that's so just really amazing. So I wanted to just say that, you know, we are going to have two senatorial elections in Georgia and that they are so important. And so the way we can kind of honor all of this work that the organizers have done to get us this far and to help get this last push and hopefully get two Senate seats, which would be amazing, is you can donate to Fair Fight Action, the New Georgia Project, or you can donate to either of the Asaf or Warnock campaigns. And I did all of those this morning. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah, so donate and um, and get involved. If you live in Georgia, I will be. I'm sure Jen will be. And I just, uh, I'm proud to live in Georgia right now. Yes. I, not something I ever thought would come out of my mouth. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. Man, um, so for 
sending dumb, I feel like you touched on everything that I was going to say. Yeah. Also, just, you know, this has been a wild, wild week. And yeah, the president's reaction is just mind blowing. I, I, I just very unpresidential, I will mm-hmm. say, and very unpatriotic. And quite frankly, dangerous. And it worries me. And something I love is, yes, that I I love that we're seeing hope and um, fingers crossed, babe. Like I, like, I feel like we're conditioned to, uh, for losses and failures. Yes. None of us want to jump the gun by counting our chickens. So we're playing it very safely, but, um, there's hope. And also, I just want to say something that I love is you. And it's your birthday week. Aww. And I feel like your birthday has gotten pushed under the rug or set aside because it's such a big, crazy week. And I feel like I'm forcing you to celebrate it. Like, How about today? What about today? Who's you said today? Who's you said today? But um, I just so I'm going to force you to celebrate um, right now. So everyone – but in your cars or wherever you're listening, in your kitchen, everybody just scream at the top of your lungs, <laughs> happy birthday, Sally. I feel it. I can hear it, you guys. Thank you. <laughs> no, Jen, I really – it was so nice. Jen is like, we're celebrating. And I was like, I can't. I can't celebrate. <laughs> I, I can't I do it until this is over. I just can't do it. Um, but I – I, it just it makes me so happy that I have uh, such wonderful friends, especially you, who, you know, just are, made my birthday very special. So thank Good. you. Well, and all of you who just yelled in your cars. Yay. Or if you're at work. I hope you yelled at work. So, <laughs> dude, I'm very proud of us. We got through election week, and I feel like we pulled off a pretty good episode. I mean, I feel like right? we really nailed it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, you guys let us know. Email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for sticking with us. We love you so, so, so much. We love hearing from you. So please keep reaching out to us on yes. Instagram and our email and, and everywhere you can find us. Just Drop a little hey hey. Drop a little hey hey. Drop and, a little uh, hey hey. And uh, get out there and do something dumb for your country. No, don't. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, do something dumb for love. Dum 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 d